to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you ever hide parts of yourself because you're afraid other people might judge you or think that you're kind of weird? Do you turn to unhealthy habits to cope with your insecurities? Do you ever feel like you have to fit into a certain label? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. I'm talking to Craig Conover. He's an attorney. He's also a reality TV star who appears on Bravo's Southern Charm. And he loves to design and sew pillows. When I first said he's an attorney, you might have developed a certain image in your head. But then when I said he's a reality TV star, you might have developed a different image of who this person is. And when I mentioned he loves to sew, you might have developed another idea of who Craig might be. That's because we all have certain ideas of what an attorney is supposed to be like and what a reality TV star is like and what someone who sews pillows is like. And all three of those images in our heads might not match up as we try to imagine the person who would fit all three of those things. Well, for a long time, Craig struggled to know who he really was and to be able to give himself permission to express the different sides of himself. But now he's learned to embrace those different sides, including his hobby turned business, sewing pillows. He's also written a book about it called Pillow Talk, What's Wrong With My Sewing? Some of the things he talks about on today's show are how he once abused Adderall to deal with his insecurities, how he dealt with being bullied, and the steps he's taking now to manage his mental health. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Craig's strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Craig Conover on how to find the courage to be yourself. Craig Conover, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to speak with you all today. Well, I loved your book, Pillow Talk. I have a copy of it right here. Checked it out. And I find it so interesting that, and I think our audience will too, that here you are, this reality TV star, you're a lawyer, and then you wrote a book about sewing your passion and gave us some of your backstory. But can you, for people who haven't yet read your book, can you explain a little bit about how this book came about? Yeah, no, it's awesome. I, uh, I, I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to share my story because I took anything but the traditional path um, uh, several times in my life. And I think it's okay. And hopefully people relate to why I did that in the book and maybe see a, a clear, healthy path for them. But yeah, I grew up in, um, you know, the Eastern Shore of Delaware. And um, I had a great, you know, childhood and great parents and great home to go to, but experienced pretty cruel bullying for a while. And so I wanted to reset for college. So I moved to Charleston, reestablished myself. Um, it's kind of where I self-validated and was like, hey, I, everything's going to work out. But anyway, We'll get to that. But moved to Charleston for undergrad and stuck around for law school. And then Southern Charm on Bravo found me like nine years ago almost and started doing the show. And so I've been on TV for uh, almost nine years now. And um, I put law school on hold for a little bit. Uh, but I took my bar a couple of years ago and passed. Um, anyway, sorry, I'm trying to figure out all the tree branches. But when I was younger, I had uh, Homec. And like, you know, in middle school, 
And later in life, when I was going through a, a tough breakup uh, and had to leave my garden and my workshop behind, I still had my sewing machine. And so I started showing, sewing as my outlet um, for creation. And through that, Blossom Sewing Down South. So we can get into any of those other things. But yeah, I guess that wasn't, <laughs> it was a hard path to follow what I just said, but. Well, and I, it makes sense why it's a difficult story to explain because you wear all these different hats, do all these different things, and, uh, and now you're an author. We can add that to the list next to entrepreneur, lawyer, <laughs> reality TV star. It's pretty wild. I know you are too, but like, like, isn't it wild when you do your first book? Right, right. And you're just waiting for it. And then when you see it in a store for the first time, all of these things is so exciting. Let's talk about uh, some of the struggles you went through as a kid. One of the things you talk about in your book is, is bullying. And that you were bullied at different times. Yeah, it was. Um, it was wild. Through through writing the book, actually, it was very therapeutic because um, I didn't realize how much shame I carried from the bullying. And I think that's kind of a missed thing. People don't realize that. But the kid that's getting bullied, not only does that part just suck and is terrible, but you're actually shameful because you feel embarrassed or like you did something wrong. And so the only thing that kept me, you know not alive, but like in a healthy mindset was like, I was very fortunate to go home to a healthy household. And I knew that the kids bullying me didn't. I knew that they were just doing whatever their dads did um, when they got home off the school bus. I mean, that's where that language came from and stuff. Didn't make it any easier, but uh, my heart used to pain. so, And it still does for the kids where school's supposed to be their safe place because they're trying to escape their, their home. Um, and then it becomes, you know, just as cruel as their home. But anyway, yeah, I, I, mine was kind of senseless. You know, I was a good athlete and I was, uh, I was one of the, I was in all the gifted like academic classes and I actually went to college for math in eighth grade. And I just had all this stuff that for some reason became, you know, when you're younger, you become a target for bullying. But if you can just make it through high school, all of the things that you get bullied for actually become cool. Like being intelligent becomes cool. Like school becomes cool. And it was always about just surviving and <clears throat> making it out of high school. And I, because of my, my parents, I, I truly believed I was good enough. And I never really like doubted myself. I just knew in due time, like it would work out and I just had to kind of survive it. But yeah, I mean, in the book you read, like it manifested itself into really bad ticks and OCD and routines. And that was, um, that was probably the worst part. You know, you, you're, it, it wasn't until I watched this, I think it was MTV, like true life. Um, I have OCD or something like that. Or, and I was like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, you see other people doing the same routines you do. And it was the first time you don't like you, it's the first time you realize that it's not just you. Um, cause it's not anything you talk about with people. Yeah, there's a pretty powerful part of the book where you talk about how you finally came clean to your father. He didn't realize that why well, it took you so long to go to bed because you had these rituals that you had to do at night. And then you explained to him, this is what's going on. Did you know as a kid, did you know what it was? No. And I, I, I was, I don't know, not saying in a conceited way, but I knew I was smart. Like I knew I was intelligent and I understood a lot for my age, but I didn't understand the rituals. And it scared me. And I, because I didn't understand them, I tried to hide them as much as possible. Um, and like suppressing some of my more like public 
like I'd have to clear my throat in a certain way or whatever, but I would suppress that throughout school. And then it just made my like rituals or routines um, worse at home, but I just didn't understand it. And finally, when I talked about it, um, you know, everyone's like, oh yeah, that's just this. And they can explain it to you or like your cousin has that too. Or like I, it was just a huge, I didn't realize how much of a weight I was carrying around trying to keep it secret. Um, which there was no reason to, you just don't understand it as a kid. Cause I had never been exposed. You never learn about it in school. I'd never seen it on TV. I just thought I was, you know, I don't know, different or, you know, something. Did you ever get treatment for it? No, I did head scans, um, when I was little, which I didn't really remember or realize, and they never like found anything. Um, and mine was, kind of self-induced. Like I never had Tourette's and it was never uncontrollable. It was all mental based. And I haven't read into it as much as I can to, cause like I have a cousin who hers, like she can't control. Um, but mine was, it was a choice, but then you tell yourself if I don't do it right this time, something bad's going to happen, you know, classic, you know, whatever it would, I actually should read up on it. Um, but no, I was never treated. And actually when I started taking Adderall, which I'm sure I'll get to, it made them... It, so I, when I left high school, they went away. And then when I started taking Adderall again, they came back. Or when I started taking Adderall, they came back. And it wasn't until I stopped taking Adderall that that was one of the things that left me. Like my rituals left. Like every now and then, you know, my girlfriend will pick up, like I'll hit the lights, you know, one or two more times than I need to. But it's nothing compared to what it used to be. Yeah. So I happen to be a therapist and I know OCD comes out when people are stressed out often. So it makes sense that while you were in high school, this is what like the one thing you could control and all the anxiety ended up uh, coming out in this strange way for you. And of course, if you have like tics or you're struggling with these rituals the more you try to cover them up, sometimes the worse they get. Yeah. And it's this cycle. Uh, but it makes sense that they, they went away. But let's talk about the Adderall um, problem that you had later on. Yeah, I... It's, I'm really happy. One of my favorite parts of this book is addressing that because I talked. I chose to talk about it on TV a couple of years ago because it was basically at a reunion for one of our shows, which, you know, and I'm getting pestered with all these like questions. And the answer was because of Adderall, but I had just never talked about it. And finally, I was just like, I just decided to come clean. And everyone was kind of like, oh, like that makes sense. And basically it, it's, and so the point is, I, I'm glad I'm sharing it now because after I shared it on TV, I had a lot of people reach out to me. I mean, s- some celebrities, some really successful people and being like, Craig, I've never talked to anyone about this before, but it affects my relationship with my husband or my wife, my relationship with my kids. And like, I don't know what to do about it because no one talks about it. And so, you know, mine started in, you know, junior year of college and it was a miracle drug. And, you know, to me, and I went from, you know, being like having like a, a terrible, terrible, terrible GPA uh, to making Dean's List. And then I went to law school and I got to continue having a social life while being in like the top 5% of my class because I was abusing Adderall. And then when law school stopped, you know, I started to be told by friends, like, if you don't have a test to study for, you probably shouldn't be taking it. But it wasn't until I started things started to go south in my relationship uh, with my girlfriend at the time. And I didn't realize it, but I was suffering from depression. Like I was really depressed, but I had no clue what that was or why I was feeling the way I I was. 
and Adderall was my happy pill. So like if I took an Adderall, my emotional side of my brain shut down and I could focus on doing laundry or gardening or whatever it would be. And so that was my escape. And that's when it kind of started to to spin where now it wasn't, I was taking, like I was prescribed it, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should be taking what you're prescribed, right? But it, ju- it, it allows you to justify what you're doing. Um, and so then when I moved to the Bahamas for a little while, I was able to find myself again and, and wean myself off it. But, um, you know, like every addict, then I went right back into it when I started, you know, had the stressors of the show and the States, like when I moved back to the States. And then I finally just quit cold turkey. And it's kind of funny because you run out of your Adderall and without your Adderall, you can't bring yourself to make an appointment for your Adderall. And then eventually you just don't have it for so long that, uh, and basically I never filled it again. So that was three years ago. And it's the first time I've ever understood addiction because my dad was an alcoholic and stopped drinking when I was born. But he always says like, you're always an alcoholic. And I just, that never made sense to me. Cause I'm like, what do you mean? You're not an alcoholic. It's been 35 years. But the reason that I don't have Adderall in my house is so I'm not tempted. And I've never taken a single pill in three years because I, and it was, it's like you're a pro at this, so you I hopefully you know like you can clear you can articulate all of this better, so it's probably funny listening to me say it, but I just I've actually really never talked to anyone that knew what they were talking about about this, you know. And well, I'm glad that you brought this up because we just had another guest on our show, Mallory Irvin, who was talking about uh, prescription pill addiction as well, and they were prescribed to her, but she said it had completely gotten out of control. And so many people don't realize, they're like, well, it's prescribed to me. Or if it's prescribed to somebody, because we know a lot of people borrow somebody else's Adderall. And they think, well, if it's prescribed to somebody else and it helps me, then it's fine to take. But you, in the book, you explain how you got to the point where you were hiding pills around the house because you didn't want anybody to hear you opening, opening the prescription bottle, right? Yeah, that's one of my favorite lines in the book. Um, And it was really neat because um, the person I was working with, you know, my writer just, he understood me. And, um, anyway, yeah. So during that time I was living with my girlfriend and, you know, this was, this was the year that, you know, you kind of, things are going South, but I mean, you're in such a routine, you're living with someone, you don't really know what to do to get out of it. I had the pressures of, you know, finishing my thesis for law school and then studying for the bar. And there was always an excuse. So I could justify it to myself why it was okay to be taking Adderall, but I couldn't justify it to anyone else anymore, and especially not my girlfriend at the time. And so in my head, I was like, oh, like it's a, it's an easy tell if I go into the bedroom or the bathroom and like you can hear the pill bottle. So I'll just place some around the house in case, you know, I want to take one tonight. And yeah, looking back at it, you're like, yes, if you're having to hide taking the pill or hide the time of night you're taking the pill, there's probably an issue. But I honestly, it's coming out of that haze or that fog for the first time is when you realize is when I realized I had a problem because just like anything in life, I in my life, I hit it fairly well from everyone. Um, But yeah, coming out of that haze for the first time and looking at yourself and being like, Oh, man, how, (laughs) how did I get to this point? is a, uh, is a humbling experience. And then how about now without it? How do you do? Well, so with the people that come up to me and ask, 
you know, a lot of times it's like, well, are you still as productive as you were? And I'm like, no, like, no, I, but I'm happier. I was like, no, I can't stay up all night or for two nights in a row writing. Like that's not possible, but I'm happier and I wouldn't go back. And actually I'm more efficient with my time now because sure you could take an Adderall and do a million things, but the thing you were supposed to do. Um, and now it's just, it's just, it, it, I'm just more efficient with it. And so, um, well, there's something I was going to say about the humbling part of it, but, um, oh yeah. So that was one of the reasons I wanted, you know, I'm excited for people to read this book though, is because hearing me say it, or when people read this is kind of the first time that they are taking a step back and looking at their themselves or their selves and be like, look, I've never really addressed this before, but Craig's actually explaining exactly what's going on in my life right now. And maybe like, you know, if he was able to get out, I can too, or hopefully there's some positivity that comes from it. I'm sure there will be as a therapist. It's one thing when I say to somebody, wow, this could be a problem. They hear it from me. They think, well, you're a professional. You're supposed to point out problems if they don't necessarily believe it. But sometimes we see ourselves in other people's stories and it makes us think, oh, wait, maybe, maybe I have this issue too. So thank you for sharing that. And for somebody who's been used to then hiding problems in life, what's it been like to be on reality TV where so much of your life is now public? Well, things really changed for me when I got, when I just decided to be open and honest. I mean, excuse me, it's a bizarre world. You know, you like first season, you're, you're brand new. You don't know what to expect. And you usually get a pretty decent, you know, what ends up airing is positive because they want everyone to like you. And then you really let your guard down your second year and you get crushed. Um, and that just makes you hide, want to control everything. And so then my third season, who you ended up watching just I didn't feel like it represented me, but it was my fault because I hid, I tried to control everything. And so you get to a point though, in later seasons where you just become yourself and you're just like, for many different factors, but you're just like, screw it. Like, I'd rather be judged on who I am entirely than this like partial, you know, shadow version of myself. And I've really enjoyed that part of it. Because, you know, for a while, I would meet people out. They'd be like, you know, within a minute or two of talking to me, be like, I like you way more in person than I like the person that I watch on TV. And that's not true for everyone. You know, there's some people on our cast that it goes the opposite way. And as time's gone on, that's gotten better. But that was one of my goals writing this book is just having a another way to connect to everyone other than just what they see on TV and, uh, you know, be vulnerable and talk about everything. So how about now? How do you manage your mental health these days? I will tell you that, and and this isn't an easy thing, but the, you know, my girlfriend now, Paige, helps a lot. Um, just having someone that, you know, say I do need to do like a ritual or something like they don't watch, like they don't judge you for it. There's no pressure and taking that pressure away makes you not want to do it. They just loving and open and accepting. And so having a supportive partner definitely helps. Um, you know, I do turn to, you know, alcohol sometimes, which I highly recognize. And like, I'm able to, you know, if I see myself drinking, like, some wine at home, like on a night, I probably shouldn't like, I'm able to be like, all right, Craig, like, go for, you know, like, I'm just a lot more cognizant of it. Um, and so I will tell you, I'm way healthier when I'm exercising when I work out, I don't want to do any unhealthy behavior. Um, you're just so kind of, 
I'm trying to think because these are great questions that, you know, I've, I've definitely told myself like I need to be going to therapy um, and talking to someone even though I'm in a good place just so I don't fall back into that stuff. I'm kind of like, I realize this stuff, but I just need to act on it. Um, honestly, just trying to stay happy. I don't, I, I, I don't know how to answer that question. It's a really good question. I think I've spent so much time staying away from the, you know, the, the things I used to do, like go to that now I just kind of find random hobbies. And I mean, sewing was what saved me, you know, sewing is when it all turned around. Um, you know, but I love gardening. I love cooking and, uh, kind of like being a homebody now. <laughs> Interesting. And I, I love the fact that you said it's uh, a good time to go to therapy when we're, we're doing well. Cause I think that used to be the place that we were in where people would think, you know, you have to be sick before you go to therapy. Yeah. And now we're realizing we've come a long way that no, you can go to therapy when things are going well, just to keep building on those things you're already doing and to keep you from falling back into old habits. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. I mean, one important thing for me and is like, I don't, you know, watch my shows and I try not to like read anything on the internet just because, um, you know, I used to, and then it affects you and you just have to be mature enough to realize that it's not healthy for you. Like I used to read a lot on the internet cause like you'll, I mean, it's ebbs and flows, you know, people love you like this and then they bring you back down and love you. And so it was really fun for a while reading all the positive stuff about you you know, you, but then it turns and I realized that it was affecting me a little bit. And I just, I made, you just have to make a grown up decision and be like, you can't handle this. So don't do it. And so the last few months have been really nice, um, kind of staying away from that stuff. Uh, just removing yourself from the negativity, which, um, was, it's just a wild world, but that was just a little tidbit on like what happens on this side of it. But yeah, so I try not to try not I try to stay in this like world and, you know, travel and do stuff like that. But anyway, and most people, you know, don't Google themselves because they're not in the news like you are all the time. But I think that's good advice for people just about being more conscious about what we consume too. that just consuming the news all day long, even if it's not about you. But there's not a lot of positive headlines out there. And for during the pandemic, so many people were glued to the news and then they felt awful. And then they were in this cycle where it was hard to shut it off. Yeah, I mean, I see it. So I travel, you know, pretty much every week now for, you know, speaking to people and it, it, everything I'm doing is based on engagement with, you know, face-to-face -face communication. And I can read it on people. I, even in like conversations about none of that. And you can see... I feel like I can profile someone that watches too much of one thing or watches too much of the other. And you can tell, I mean, th look, there's a system in place for everything. And, and <laughs> there you got to mix your, you got to mix your stuff up, you know, go outside or watch, subscribe to a happy news platform and check, try to check that just as much as you check regular news. Because look, all things aside, just be, it's not called sad news or scared news, but the news right now, like that's what it is. No matter where you're looking, it's going to be like, they're not switching out the stories to be like, oh, also like this young man helped out this elderly woman on the street today. See, there is still good out there. So I think that's an important way to, I guess, put it is try to try to read some fun, positive stuff as yeah, well. Absolutely. Let's talk about sewing for a minute. That was another one of those things that you hid from people for a while, right? Because it was embarrassing. 
a lot of boys weren't sewing when you were and you figured out, hey, I actually like this, but it wasn't something you wanted to make public at first, right? Well, I it's something that like my girlfriend was embarrassed of. I actually thought, and I've always thought that stepping out of like societal norms, especially when I left high school, I was like doing something that other people think are too scared to do is an attractive trait. Like I was actually really excited for, you know, when I had my first sewing machine for her to see it because I thought it was kind of like, I thought it was attractive. I thought it was hot to be like, oh, my boyfriend is so confident in himself that he can sew and not care about it. But it went the opposite way. You know, it was met with a very negative response um, because they were too scared of what everyone else was going to think. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I just, you know, I don't know if it was my upbringing or what, but I'm able to step outside of those societal norms. And hopefully, and I've seen it with the pillow parties, you know, we've been on tour meeting people um, at these little pop-up pillow sales. And there's been plenty of moms and sons that come in or dads. And you'd be shocked to find out how many men actually sew and how many kids actually sew. They just don't talk about it outside of the house because it's not like a cool thing to them. And so we've gotten a lot of really nice emails and letters about people that like boys are taking their projects to school now and sewing their own, you know, bags. And it's just, it's been neat. But uh, no, I definitely struggled, you know, with that. I mean, there's always overcoming it, but I kind of, it kind of motivated me and drove me to prove that, you know, all of the, I was able to turn all the hate and as you know, it was a lot of it was, why don't you just be a lawyer? That's what you're supposed to do. You went to college, went to law school, go be a law school or go be a lawyer. And I really wanted to prove to everyone that you didn't need to just follow the traditional path and that you could do more than one thing. Um, And it being something as unique as sewing just made it, you know, an even better mission to, to succeed in, to show that, you know, I I almost feel like I was giving hope to a lot of people watching being like, Craig, you're really digging this hole. You're really digging this hole. Um, And, you know, that's kind of what having the store in Charleston has been great. You know, people can come and see it and not feel bad about focusing on their side hustle and not feel bad about, you know, leaving their career for a passion. So what's it been like? Cause I hear a lot of conflicting stories about this, about turning your hobby into a way to make money. Sometimes people will say, well, I don't love it anymore because this is my source of income. But I hear other people say, if you can make money doing what you love, why not do it? What's it been like for you? I'm definitely the latter. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it, for me, it's been so fun because I have a very balanced operation with my two partners. And, you know, if it was up to me, we'd make every product in, you know, home decor that there is. But I have a really great brand manager who's like, Craig, we need to do this right and well first, and then you can make a new product. And so for me, every time we have a successful launch of something or a new pillow collection, I get to create a new product for the company. So now we're going into kitchen stuff. Now we're going into bedding. And so I actually get to do what I've always you know, wanted to do. Um, you know, I think a lot of people get, there's a ton of pressure from coworkers and outside forces that tell you not to do it. I mean, look, the only person in my life that I was the only person that thought this would work, um, you know, other than my parents, they're just going to support me with whatever I do. But other than that, there wasn't a single person in my life other than maybe my friend, Catherine, that was like, yes, you should pursue this. And so what I try to share with people is, 
just because you're going to work and like some of your coworkers are making fun of the craft that you're making in your garage or you selling your whatever you're doing doesn't mean it's a bad idea. They're either just jealous or can't see your vision. I mean, if everyone had the same idea, you know, there wouldn't be any value in yours. So, you know, I, yeah, I definitely have, I've, I've, you know, fallen even more in love with it as we've going. But I, I also, you know, I, I realized that I am fortunate to have other sources of income because I know it'd be really hard to give up, you know, your primary source of income to focus on your side hustle. But, you know, if you do want to spend time on it, you just shouldn't feel guilty about it. But what's it do for your mental health to be able to sew and make creative things? Well, that I mean, I guess that's my answer to your question earlier. Sewing down south is my, you know, that's my vice now and going to the store and creating and sketching on the plane and sharing my product with people. That's, you know, that's my structure now. That's what keeps me from just laying around you know, being bored, left to my own, you know, I just structure and staying busy to me is when I'm my healthiest. And that's why I love traveling and doing all this stuff. But yeah, sewing down south and having my crafting, you know, having my hobby turned into a business now makes me feel, you know, complete almost. So for somebody listening who maybe does have a a little hobby or something like that, what would be your one piece of advice to them? Don't let anyone steal your happiness. Like, you know, if that's what makes you happy, do it. Um, that's the most heartbreaking thing when people stop doing something that they absolutely love because of bullies or non-support. And hopefully your partner's supportive of you. But yeah, just keep moving. You know, I think something I discovered when writing this book was I got in my most amount of trouble and I was most unhealthy when I was stagnant. Um, and just keep moving. You know, sometimes that movement is going to be backwards, but eventually you're going to do enough right things that you're going to see forward progress. And for years, like two years, I was stuck just sewing pillows in my in my house. I had plenty of messages, people trying to order them, um, and I could not get out of my own way. I they weren't good enough to me. They weren't perfect. Like my OCD was coming back. And if I would have, you know, the second I just started sending out pillows and started doing something, all of a sudden it started to build. So I'd say just keep moving. Um, But I know it's hard. I mean, my, I was my own, I was my biggest obstacle. Um, You know, even like writing a business plan, I kept, you know, I knew you, you should write a business plan, but I kept my procrastination of writing that business plan kept me from actually doing my business for a while. Um, so yeah, just keep moving and just, if you think it's a good idea, that's all that matters. Like you have to, and you already do and your gut, you know, it's a good idea. Just do it. And it's obviously nice when other people agree with you, but they're not going to in the beginning phases all the time. I agree completely. Craig Conover, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. I hope everybody goes out and gets a copy of Pillow Talk. Thank you, Amy. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down Craig's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Craig's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, get clear on your values. Craig said he was more productive when he abused Adderall, but he's happier now that he's not using it anymore. He paid a price for abusing it. He had to keep it a secret and he didn't like who he was. 
He values living an honest, happier life over being more productive. I kind of like that he acknowledged that there was an upside to his addiction. After all, he wouldn't have kept abusing it if he wasn't getting something out of it. But he had to also acknowledge what it was costing him. And he recognized that he wasn't living according to his values. He values happiness and honesty more than productivity. It's important to know what you value in life and to recognize when something stands in between you and the values that you want to live. Number two, get honest about the things that you're hiding from other people. Craig went to great lengths to keep his Adderall misuse a secret from the people around him. He had to get honest about it before he could get better, starting with being honest with himself. But it's not just substance use that people keep a secret. Sometimes people have a secret life online or they have a financial secret. And I guarantee everyone has a secret. And secrets are a big contributor to mental health problems. Take a look at the secrets in your life and consider why you're hiding them. Is it because you have an unhealthy habit that requires you to keep it a secret? If it came to light, would other people pressure you to stop? Or do you keep secrets because you don't want to be judged? Get honest with yourself about your secrets and why you hide certain things from other people. Then you can decide whether you need the courage to talk about what's going on or you need the courage to change your behavior. And number three, find a hobby. Craig's hobby happens to be that he likes sewing pillows. And he's been able to turn that into a business. He finds that creating and sewing is really good for his mental health. And he's learned that it's okay if not everybody understands his passion. Hobbies are really good for us. So whether you like to paint or you like to grow plants, step away from your obligations once in a while and do something you love. But the internet seems to become a time filler for so many people. So it's not surprising that many of us struggle to know what our hobbies are. Most of our spare time can be easily wasted scrolling through the news or working extra hours. But you might have a hobby that you used to love and you just gave it up over the years. But if you go back to doing that, you might find you still love it just as much. And if you've never really found a hobby that you love, experiment. You might try woodworking one week and learning to sew another. You might find that there isn't one hobby that you absolutely love, but maybe there's a lot of things you really like to do. But having some leisure time activities to create things and to relax is essential to your well-being. And keep in mind, not everyone has to understand your hobby. So those are three of Craig's strategies that I highly recommend. Get clear on your values, get honest about the things you hide from other people, and find a hobby. If you want to hear more of Craig's story, check out his book, Pillow Talk. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.